Yes. Cool. Um, I'd like something banana split-like, perhaps. Okay. Okay. Do we need to wait until your banana split comes? Oh, no. She's going to be like 45 minutes from now. That's a theme song to the banana splits, in case you uh, That must have been for Rodrigo, because there's yeah, no he, way... He was nodding. It. He knew it. Yeah. I, I mean, can you, I, I can you name... The four banana splits, though. There was an ape. That's the only yeah, one I remember. I, I know there was a, a horse, like, because, you know, <laughs> I only encountered them, like, right. maybe a year ago, oh, really? where I saw some retro <laughs> thing on, like, Boomerang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was like, God, those things are horrid. <laughs> like, that that ape is just hideous. <laughs> the oh. ape's name is, is, is Bingo. Hmm. Fleagle is a beagle. Hmm. Drooper is uh, a pooper. I can't remember Drooper. <laughs> I think Drooper is like a coyote okay. or a lion, and then Snorky is an elephant. Yeah, but yeah, the, vo- elephant. the voice work on that show is awesome because it's got um, Paul Winchell who was oh, yeah, Tigger. Yeah, yeah. It, it's got um, the man who did Sam the Butcher, whose name always escapes me, Alan Melvin, who was also the voice of uh, Magilla Gorilla. Yeah, huh? It's awesome. It's like awesome. <laughs> This is what happens when hippies take over your network. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers. And we will go into detail about the topics we discuss, so if you haven't read, listened to, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. In tonight's outing, Image founders head for home, wall crawlers head back to the big screen, the X-Men head back for Earth, DC's Big Three head for trouble, the next big thing is 20 years ago, and we tackle head-on one of the world's great conundrums, can Logan's claws pierce an adamantium shield? Plus a look back at Frank Miller's opus, a look forward at the Gamma Goliath's do-over, all this and former Captain America Steve Rogers is still dead, as this, the podcast, reaches the age of majority. The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Ah, uh, we uh, old folks are reminiscing about TV shows from the 70s and trying to explain <laughs> it all to uh, to Rodrigo, but he doesn't care about the bugaloos or I don't the know what this, banana this splits. HR or... puffing stuff sounds suspiciously <laughs> like hippies just took over the network. Hey, wait till you see the talking flute, man. Uh, so a lot of big stories uh, this week. Uh, speaking about tripping back into the golden age, well, maybe not the true golden age, mm-hmm. but what, what do you guys think about this announcement that came out about uh, Todd McFarlane uh, – Returning to Spawn, he's going to take up writing duties, and uh, uh, what's 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 the other guy's name? Uh, Will's Will's Portaccio. Yeah, Will's Portaccio doing uh, the artwork. I like it's I re- like Spawn when it first came out. So and then you know stopped reading it just because it it kind of wasn't my thing. It was a, a my thing. It was a new thing, right? So I was interested in it, but I mean you know it's it's cool. I remember I'm buying all of the it. issues too, and I forget at which point I was just like, you know what. I'm done reading this. I think mm-hmm. it was the probably about five issues after the bat, first Batman Spawn crossover. Mm-hmm. That would have been about the time that I was done with it. It was the point where I think issue 19 came out. There was a huge wait for issue 20, and then they actually put out issue 21 before issue 20 was finished. Wow. Mm. Yeah, it got to the point where I was just like, this is ridiculous. It's it's less a golden age and more of a gold foil logo age yeah. to me. <laughs> The interesting thing about this is that, you know, Wills Portaccio, 
is really kind of known for being the other image founder. Yep. I mean, it, it, he's I, always I the one exactly. that I forget too. It's like, okay, you can name Todd McFarlane. You can name, uh, 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 what's his face? And the other guy. And then that Rob fellow. Lightfield. And then I always forget this, the, this the guy. The top cow guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I always Jim forget. Valentino and, and, but when you look at Will Sportaccio, I'm like, what, what has Will Sportaccio done to make a mark? I, uh, his big book, I think was wet works. Mm-hmm. Which, to the wiki. To the wiki! Wetworks, to me, was the the prime example of how the best porn titles actually make interesting (laughs) comic book titles. But uh, Todd McFarlane coming back to writing, it kind of gives me a a chill at the same time as it makes me wonder if it might be interesting. I I think it'll be interesting. Go and listen if you guys haven't done so. Go over to MyExtraLife.com and listen to uh, our friend Scott Johnson's most excellent interview that he landed uh, with Todd McFarlane uh, last week. It's a great, about an hour-long interview uh, that he has, and that's only the first part. There's another part that he's going to uh, play on his other podcast, The Instance, I think, this weekend. Uh, But the first one, the one that's uh, part of ELR, is uh, uh, all about comics and how he got into comic books and then the founding of Image and especially writing Spawn and those kinds of things. Really good, really good piece that everyone should check out excellent yeah and um oh i'm sorry russell russell just jumped all over my case this week (laughs) because i mentioned that possibly quite possibly well and it's not just me saying it yeah it's the director of the hulk film saying hey you might see more than just a uh, uh, Tony Stark cameo in this film, mm-hmm. you might actually see Captain America appear in the movie. Now, I don't know if this is going to be an after-the-credits thing, because there's this great clip that I put up today that features uh, Tony Stark talking with somebody, one mm-hmm. of the generals, uh, right at the beginning. And so that one's already been known. But this Captain America one, I didn't even know. They probably haven't even cast that part, as far as I know, have no. they? I thought they had, but I can't remember who's in it. Um, the only thing that I could think of is you see this probably a reference to Steve Rogers and the super soldier for, for uh, formula being mm-hmm. drawn from him or serum being drawn from him. Uh, uh, because, yeah, if you just had some guy step out and say, oh, yeah, we found him frozen in the Arctic, uh, meet Captain America, he's going to be on the team. Yeah. Somehow you have to tie in what they're going to, you know, inject the abomination with mm-hmm. to right. Steve Rogers. So that's where I think the uh, cameo is going to come from. Because it's all related. It's all tied together. It's all connected. That's it. That's the secret. We're all connected, which, you know, uh, as far as Ultimate Origins go, I kind of like that story. But you're right. I think, Matthew, you talked about it. That's the problem with a closed system is that even in shows like Lost and on Buff, everybody has to be connected in some way. So that's kind of a little bit of a letdown. When you run out of connections and you have to create something new out of whole cloth, it feels like you've, you know, had to graft something onto that original concept. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but speaking of original concepts, uh, a new Spider-Man script is on the way. Ooh. But the big question is, is Sam Raimi going to direct Spider-Man 4? Now, he said in an interview, I don't remember if it was MTV or Empire Online, one of those two, uh, where he said, hey, look, I'm going to wait until I see the script before I decide whether I'm going to direct it or not. And Sony Pictures even came out and said, wow, this is it's very rare for a director to say, I'll decide if I want to direct it after I read the script. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, kudos to Sam Raimi. I think Sam Raimi is one of the, I don't want to say only professional directors out there, but he's someone who certainly comes to it with a very professional mindset of, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be involved in something unless I know I can make it good. If it's crap, then why slap my name on it? And, and, you know, he has a very distinctive style, but... I never, I never feel like, oh man! After watching this movie, I got some Sam Raimi stuck 
back here someplace. <laughs> you know, it's like like it feels with like Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith's characters right, talk right. a certain way. Quentin Tarantino's action always happens a certain way. You know, stuff like that. Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi gives a has a lot of style, but it doesn't feel like he's slapping you over the head with it. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly if you go back and look at his Evil Dead stuff, where he kind of invented a lot of really clever techniques, you don't see him trying to force those techniques into his other films mm -hmm. with the exception of bruce campbell and any movie that has bruce campbell in it has got to be a great <laughs> and, movie and his, so. his little brother right yeah, yeah. And, and don't yeah. forget lucy lawless who's in virtually everything he does it, too really well she, she's yeah. not spider-man is she she's in spider-man for a split second she's the little goth chick who says "Ooh, eight arms sounds kind of kinky or oh, something okay. like that interesting wow I'm like gonna five know that. I'm gonna have to go back. Yeah, but I know his brother's always in it. Mm -hmm. Lucy and... Lawless is on my celebrity list. So. Oh, I see. Oh, I'm gonna have to see what my celebrity list is. Anyway, those are some <laughs> of the top stories. You can read more and other great stories over at uh, Majorspoilers.com. Warning: You may be spoiled if you go and read any of the stories True. at Majorspoilers.com. Why don't we go ahead and get into some reviews, uh, Rodrigo? We're gonna start off with you always with our first review, and you're gonna take a look at 1985, which. Yes. Isn't okay, that the we, year you were born? Yeah. No, no. I was I was a seasoned two years old in 1985, which is part of the reason why I was curious to read about this. I mean, uh, this this comic book is is very much set. It, uh, it's it's a it's a very retrospective comic book. They talk about Secret War, which I've read, right? Um, and they talk about a lot of the stuff that actually got me into comic books when I found out about it a good ten years later. So, uh, okay, now just to kind of clarify. The Marvel Universe people spill over into our Earth, yeah. Earth Prime. If, By, if this, if there yeah. was such a thing in the Marvel Universe, the real Universe. world, if you will. Okay, we're going to call it Earth Prime, okay. devoid of Superboy Prime. Right. But now, let me ask you this: Tom Welling, Earth. Tom <laughs> Welling. Tom Welling. <laughs> so the nineteen eighty. So does this story Siegel. take place in nineteen eighty five, or does the current Marvel characters go to our Earth, which is in nineteen eighty five? The the. The way that it goes is it's taking place in 1985. Okay. Um, and the characters from 1985, and they, I think they reference it, like, immediately post-Secret Wars, like, something happens, and they s start popping out. By the end of the issue, you realize that at least the villains have made it over. Interesting. Um, and um, you know, it's that uh, that shot that we've had on the on the site before. That that last panel is this kid's running away from. You know, all these comic book villains that he's familiar with and that he believes completely to be real and smacks right into the Hulk. Interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, but I mean, is this a good is this a good story? I mean, is, is it interesting? You know, I, I, I don't quite know what to think of it right now. It's It's funny because, you know, it's when I was reading it, I was like, here's a story about this kid who's into this world and the world starts to come alive and no one, nobody believes him. That's been done. Right. And it's been done in the eighties. Right. So I'm thinking is like, is this on purpose? Are they, is, is, uh, cause this is Mark Miller. Yeah. Right? Mark Miller. Yeah. Is, is he specifically taking the never ending story formula? Uh, because that's how movies were done back then mm -hmm. and making a comic book out of it with his own sort of, you know, kind of fanboy service to the comics that he grew up reading. Right, right. Um, so I think, you know, I think the jury's still out on it. Uh, this issue, uh, the art is fantastic. Just the expressions on the kid, on, mm -hmm. the, on the main character, and his friend and his best friend are just absolutely priceless when they're bored and when they're sitting around. And, and really, it's not even like the surprise or the action. It's just 
these kids are so lifelike without being like photorealistic. Um, and a lot of emotion gets put into it. And also because this comic takes place, quote unquote, in the real world, the art has to be realistic enough to uh, for you to believe that it's the real world, but also has to have that kind of soft edge to it so mm-hmm. that you can believe that, yeah, in fact, the vulture with his crazy green pajamas is running around in the real world. So the art is really good. Does Miller smack you over the head? With constant, hey, you're in 1985. I didn't. I didn't feel that way. Although it is because I mean, the comic have book like is Huey so Lewis short. Playing on the right. on the eight track um, or anything like that. So yeah, it's like my the thing about the wedding singer man. It's like, <laughs> seriously, is everybody watching Billy Idol at all times? Pretty much. I mean, I know he makes a cameo later in the movie, but still. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I it didn't feel like it, although, but I think he does a good job of setting it up. You know, you end up in this comic shop and you see a guy, like the guy that he's talking to, and he's got like, um, oh, I forget what band is on his shirt. Um, and they're talking about Cerebus and they're talking about all this stuff that came out around that time. So it's kind of like they, they have some reference for the comic reader comic guy. You oh, know, okay. Kind yeah. Of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, it's. But there's probably no DC comics on the shelves anywhere. Um,. There they, are, but they're they're obliquely referenced. Oh, yeah, really? they, okay, they cool. do mention some of them, and they make a reference to like Robbie from the Fantastic Four, you know, which yeah, I yeah. think had been introduced recently as kind of like this, yeah, sort of other thing. So yeah, I I, I think I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna give it three stars, mostly because of the art, because I honestly, I mean, I I see where the. The, where the story is going, but I hope I'm wrong because if it turns out to just be kind of like this cute thing of um, you know this kid thinks you know sees story. yeah if it's the never ending story then I'm gonna be disappointed because the never ending story has been done twice even yeah all right actually three times there was like a direct to video <laughs> thing I so if the first one never ended. <laughs> Why did they have a sequel? It's it's the constant issue of the uh, all the Final Fantasy games. It's like, wait a minute, Squaresoft. <laughs> you told me Final Fantasy VIII was the last Final Fantasy. Was this IX crap? <laughs> Turns out it's just penultimate fantasy. So. <laughs> you, you had a comment, Matthew? I did have a comment. I actually had two. One of the things that I wanted to push Rodrigo at was uh, Tommy Lee Edwards, who did the art, also did a question miniseries for DC mm. with Rick Vietch a couple of years ago that was just spectacular and underrated as heck. Oh, but that was half, like three or four years ago, right? It was like 2003, 2004. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Probably readily available in quarter bins everywhere, but yeah. it's a wonderful series. And it really does, I mean, it revamps Vic Sage right before they decided to off him. Yeah. And, mm. and replace him with Renee Montoya. So it's kind of Vic Sage's last hurrah, and it, it, it holds a special place in my comic bin just for that. But having been somebody who read... Marvel Comics in 1985, I read through this issue, I liked the references to, you know, the real world and the things happening in comics at the time, and when I got done, I put it back on the stands and figure I'll wait and, you know, read the trade when it's all done. Mm -hmm. Do you think this will be better as a trade or better as as the standalone floppies? I mean, was there a sense of, oh my gosh, I cannot wait until next month when 1985 2 hits? No. No. There was no sense of urgency, and the story is is more one of those, hmm, that's kind of puzzling. Oh, well, I'll worry about it later kind of things, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it And it ends on a sort of note of like, oh, and, and then you're done. But I, I think that it'll probably, as a trade paperback, I think, you know, the completed story would be a little simpler to read. This issue feels just like, 
half a joke told to you by a drunken four-year-old. Mm-hmm. You, know? you know what? Just you, the only thing that I could say about it, because I haven't read the issue yet. I really should. It's sitting here. Uh, but the only thing that I would say about it is that last panel with the Hulk and the boy. For some reason, it just reminds me of E.T. for whatever yeah. reason. The first yeah. discovery of the alien in the woods. Not, you know, whatever else the buildup was before mm-hmm. that. Just that that moment I look at and go, you know what? That's what it reminds me of. And if that's the time period it's set at, I could believe that. And, Where's and, his Reese's Pieces? And and I think I think that's that's what it is. I, I, I'd i like to think that it is that he's, you know, sort of in a, like the meta to this whole thing is that he's telling a 1980 story set in that like style yeah, yeah. and set in the 1980s. So, I mean, right. E.T., um, I guess, Close Encounters. What did you think of the of the price point on this? I mean, this is something that we're probably going to have to talk about in the future, but the price point on a lot of these titles keeps creeping up. This one's three ninety nine. For three ninety nine, I felt like it was a good two ninety nine book. And if it had been two ninety nine, I you know there might have been a possibility that I might have you know thrown it on the pile and taken it home. But four dollars for twenty eight pages, you better grab me. And this was interesting and. I won't even say intriguing because intriguing implies a kind of, you know, a kind of intensity yeah. that isn't there. It's more of a kind of, oh, well, that's kind of clever. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I, I didn't hate that, but it's not something that I want to immediately chuck in the bag and make sure that I don't miss next issue. Well, speaking of issue, if you did miss issue number one, which apparently is sold out at the distributor level, issue number right. one is going back to press with interior art as the new cover. Uh, the new issue number one will arrive in stores on July 2nd, so you can pick it up then. I think issue two comes out maybe the week before, something like that. So they should both be in the stores at or around the same time. So Cool. Thanks, Rodrigo. Uh, This week, I read Trinity, DC's new weekly series, and the basis, well... Uh, it really is supposedly supposed to explore the bond that Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman all have together, uh, wrapped around a story that uh, is supposed to continue and draw you deep, and hopefully, and I hope to goodness, it stays disconnected from the rest of what's going on in the DC titles right now. Because i got to say, this first issue I found really interesting. A lot of people have kind of put it down saying, oh, yes, it's kind of boring, It's nothing really happens, it reminds me a lot of the first issue of Countdown. But this is what I like about it. It starts in Keystone City where uh, Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent, and Diana Prince are all meeting uh, at the uh, the Riverside Diner. And they're having breakfast together and they seem very jovial and they're talking about things. And they all start relating this same dream that the, all three of them have had. And even though each of their dreams is slightly different, there's this big presence that they feel trying to get out. It keeps saying, let me out, let me out, let me out. And it gets more and more intense. And they've been talking to all the other uh, supers to see if they've had the same dream. They haven't. They're in Keystone City because they want to meet with uh, with Wally West, the Flash, and see if he's had this dream. And so there's this cameo of the Flash and his kids as they fight, uh, 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 what's his face, a uh, Clayface, and uh, find out he hasn't been having the dream. And so they realize that it's Did something... Did Clayface? No, they didn't ask the Clayface. He was he was uh, actually how Wally West and the kids take him down is actually quite interesting. Where they kind of split him apart and then they put him into trash bags, nice. uh, which is which is really kind of sweet. Um, you know the the main story though. There's two stories told in this first issue. The main story ends with a literal bang as some explosion goes on, and then we go into um, this other story that f- features Morgan Le Fay, uh, the demon Etrigan's. Uh, 
an arch nemesis and um and this new character who carries a big iron cane that's kind of shaped in a question mark as matthew pointed out which i didn't uh, know until uh he mentioned it to me his face mask half his face is covered and it looks like a question mark he kind of speaks in riddles and he calls himself enigma uh, so I don't know if this is a future Riddler. He does say he is from the future, but I don't know if this is supposed to be a future Riddler or what. Uh, but the two of them, as well as there's a third villain, and I forget who that is, that's going to... Despero. Yeah, and Des- don't get yeah. me started on that. Well, yeah, but all three of them have been having is that the, guy the same with, dream. Is that that's the, the one with guy? the purple guy with a fin on his nice. head. Uh, and uh, all three of them have been having the same dream. And so somehow they're interconnected. And I really like how this issue, how Kurt Busiek split this issue up into two, where the first half is telling it from the hero's point of view, and the second half is being told from the villain's point of view. Hmm. Uh, and I really like the mystery element. I hope they can kind of keep this up and keep building it for 52 mm-hmm. weeks. Now, C- Kurt Busiek is one of the major spoilers panel's uh, favorite writers because of Astro City. Mm-hmm. I hope he can con- tell a- as a compelling story as he does in these pages as he has in the Astro City titles. A lot of people that I've seen have not been big fans of his writing because they said, oh, it just plods along. Nothing really happens. It's very confusing. But in this case, as an opening sequence, I, I kind of like it. You know, I, And, and if they like- can keep it away from the rest of the DCU, if they don't bring in Batman Rest in Peace, if they don't bring in Legion of Three Worlds, if they don't bring uh, the Man- Manazons uh, over in Wonder Woman, if they just keep this a title that happens at some point, I think this could be a really stellar yearly issue because mm-hmm. it's disconnected from everything else. Just like 52 was disconnected from everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say for everyone, give it at least four issues. If it doesn't grab you in a month, then go ahead and drop it. I'm giving this a good three and a half out of five stars. And I'm probably going to stick with it for quite some time. I know I've already put in my um, orders in. And so I know I'm up to issue 12 or 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to stick with it for at least that long. I, I think it's good. I think the uh, uh, the Mark Bagley art is is really good too. Um, it's it's you know there's there's obviously I mean people who are working on a weekly pace like this they're not going to be able to get everything right. So there's these little nuances where sometimes things look funky. But otherwise, I think it's a I think it's a good issue. And I like some people don't like how they've incorporated the three logos on the cover, um, with oh, the I, exception I like of the blurring that. out. But I mean That's we've already cool. got the Batman Superman logo from mm-hmm. that. Just slapping in the Wonder Woman wings on the in the middle, uh, it works for me. Yeah, what that's one of the things that I really liked about it. The, to me, the one drawback about the book is well, there's there's actually a big drawback, and then there's a comic book guy moment drawback. Okay. The big drawback is that it felt like an episode of Superman Batman with a special guest star, right? Mm. But which weren't those always know, the best dang cartoons <laughs> on? True. There was that wonderful moment at the beginning where. Batman is in character as Bruce, and yes. he's being jovial and funny, and he's he's teasing Clark, and they're talking like old friends, and he's being a human being. Right. And then, you know, Clark and, and Diana use their super senses and go, okay, no one can see us, no one can hear us, and he's like, all right, business time. Yeah. And you can hear that Kevin Conroy voice just mm-hmm. pop out of his face. Right. That was great. Um, the comic book guy problem that I have is, you're a Booster Gold reader, correct? Yes. The pink man with the fin going vertically across his head in Booster Gold. Yes. The member of the Time Stealers. Yes. That's Despero. Right. The same character that we see in this book with the fin going dorsally on his oh, head yeah. in his savage incarnation. No, but, so, but no, wait. 
it, no, isn't in Booster Gold the that Despero? Isn't that a different incarnation of it, or what are they? Maybe that, it's an alternate timeline because at one point it must the be. fin was going in the other direction. It always hasn't Des- been dorsally. Despero started out with his fin going across his head, right? And in old issues of JLA, he mutated in I, I think near the end of the original Justice League series, about the time they killed Steel and Vibe Nerd. to the new form where he became the Great Big Pink Hulk. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, uh, well, and of course, there's the time travel element. So God yeah, only knows. I, I'm what betting time there's some time travel elements going on here because yeah, he's certainly guy. not the he's certainly not the hulked out version and booster that he is here. So mm. it's the same guy. Yeah, but I it's mean, it's it, same guy. Something happens before something happens. Let's just put it that way. And if you want to <laughs> be saying, if you want to be but, nitpicky about the art, then that's why it earns three and a half out of five stars. I am nitpicky, and I'll tell you why I'm nitpicky. I've been reading about Lex Luthor for three months without knowing how he gets back from Salvation Planet. Well, this is why you and everybody else. I mean, take a look at what I talked about in Detective Comics, how yeah. Selena Kyle's back. It's in Catwoman. It's, it's throughout the entire. I mean, look at uh, look at the, uh, the, the other uh, Final Crisis. How the heck did everybody get back? We don't know. Salvation Run! <laughs> now, DC was kind enough this week <laughs> to send me... DC was kind enough to send me a review copy of Trinity Number One, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm just going to go ahead and give it away. Uh, you know, I think it's good enough, and so we're going to make a little contest out of it. It's going to go out to one lucky U.S. Re- resident uh, winner. Again, we can only we're poor; we can't afford to ship overseas. Yeah. Uh, sure. So to win this first issue of Trinity Number One, all you have to do is send an email to podcast at majorspoilers.com, and in the subject line, simply put trinity contest now in order to successfully be entered into the contest you also need to give us a little bit of information about batman superman and wonder woman tell us the first issue appearances by superman batman and wonder woman put that in the body of your email Uh, again only open to listeners in the united states send your entry to podcast at majorspoilers.com in the subject line trinity contest tell us the first issue appearances of superman batman and wonder woman i like trinity it's not the best thing out there, but I like it. Yeah, it was good. Uh, going, jumping back over to Marvel really quick. First time I saw Giant Size Astonishing X Men that Matthew said he was going to review, I was like, "Is this a retro review? Haven't we seen Giant Size <laughs> Astonishing X Men before?" We have not. We've seen Giant Size Uncanny X Men. Oh, that's what it is. Okay, but Giant Size Astonishing X Men is actually the grand finale, the uh, the creme de la creme, the the tête de la tête, the uh, fromage con queso <laughs> of Joss Whedon and uh, John Cassidy's run on Astonishing X Men. So why is uh, it? Why is it if it's the end of Josh Whedon's run? Why uh-huh. is it a number one issue? Um, because Marvel likes to sell number one issues. Ah, okay. So please tell us what goes on with our ex heroes in space. Something about a giant bullet, right? When last we saw our heroes, they were on the break world home of Ord, who proves that all the good names really are taken. Uh-huh. And, uh, they, uh, basically everyone on the break world is in turmoil because of a prophecy that peter rasputin colossus will come and destroy their planet and in order to keep that from happening they have created a weapon essentially a bullet fired from celestial distance to destroy the earth now the x-men have tried to stop this and failed and kitty pride also known as kitty porn which is just funny to say has faced inside of the bullet she is stuck in the bullet and her teammates are trying to rush home to a save her and b also you know save that planet that they're from from being annihilated 
But the best part, the to me, the real wonderful moment of the issue is the first page of art. It's a two-page spread by John Cassidy of Spider-Man swinging over New York. It is beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. And he's got the web pits. Oh, you cool. Gotta, and this is the thing that gets me is that there's been a lot of discussion about where Astonishing X-Men fits in continuity, if it even does. In uh, Secret Invasion number three, the same day this came out, there was a joke where Spider-Man said that he would never wear the web pits anymore. It was like seeing himself in a disco suit. Yeah. So, so it kind of cracked me up. Spider-Man ends up being recruited by remaining members of the X-Men Storm and the Angel and Iceman and getting together with most of the heroes of Earth who are by now aware of the 400,000-foot bullet coming towards the planet. So while the X-Men are in space trying to find their way back home and save the Earth, the heroes of Earth are trying to find their way out into space to save the planet. Um, one of the moments that really strikes me, a very Joss Whedon moment, a very beautiful moment, is uh, Agent Monica Brand, the green-haired girl who's the head of S.W.O.R.D., which is the extraterrestrial uh, arm of S.H.I.E.L.D. So this shows- obviously doesn't take place, be- this must take place before Secret Invasion. It almost has to, yeah. But um, Monica reveals that she has superpowers, Ah. ends up fighting her way out of a battle, and um, there's this wonderful moment where the Beast is finally confronting her, telling her, you're hiding something. She tells him it's not relevant, it's personal. He says, you're hiding something, tell me. She's like, I'm so so hot for you right now, I could frickin' pass out. And there's this moment of silence she stands up, walks away, and says, told you it was personal. <laughs> Just a beautiful Joss Whedon moment. Very, you know, Buffy, Spike, Buffy, Angel, Buffy, whoever walks in in the next season. Right. But um, my, while Colossus tries to save the planet, we actually see Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four successfully save the Earth. It takes no, like wait, I thought Kitty Pride saved the Earth. No, stay with me. Stay okay. with me. It's perfect, and it's beautiful. And then we we see Reed get this big smile and a bit of drool runs down his chin and all the superheroes of Earth are standing there, transfixed, and I think Emma Frost is beaming into their brain images that they've saved the planet. Oh, I see. Because if they destroy the bullet, they destroy Kitty. Yeah. And it's it's a really awesome moment. Um, Kitty no, actually... Wait, now, so a- let me ask you about this then. Is yes. Emma Frost projecting that into everyone's mind to make it easier in case the bullet does destroy Earth? You know, this final thought of, oh, everything's good. We don't have to panic. And did you think? I, about I didn't well, really read it that way, but it'd be interesting if she did. Did you think of it that way? Robert? Well, I think what, what Matthew was saying is that Reed Richards was about to pull the trigger that's going to destroy the bullet. Oh, oh okay. and Emma Frost made him think that he had. Oh, OK. So that they, they could get a little extra time to save Kitty. I see. OK. Right. And she telepathic- she's telepathically communicating with Kitty. And Kitty reveals that she is bonded with the bullet. She doesn't think she can get out. And there's a really sweet moment that kind of caps off, you know, Kitty and Emma have been really at each other's throats for 24 issues, where it's obvious that they have one another's respect. It's a really, really nice moment for both women. And then, of course, we get to the end. Spider-Man figures it all out, wakes up the other heroes just in time to see the bullet crash into Manhattan. Well, sort of, as it, it passes through the entire planet, mm. Kitty Pride manages to save the world at the cost of her own, I don't want to say her life. 
Now, I wouldn't say she, that either because uh, she's not dead. No, she's not. And if you think she is dead, you might want to check a story. I don't know if we'll have it up this week or not. I'm sure we're going to get it sometime soon. But yeah. Marvel did send out a cover preview that happened to have a certain person on the cover yeah. that looks an awful lot like Kitty Pride. And the solicitations didn't say somebody would die. They said one of these heroes won't be coming home. Right. Which, you know, is important. But Kitty heroically manages to phase the bullet through the whole planet. We get to the end, and, and Cyclops explains to everyone that, you know, they don't think they can get her, they don't think they can save her. And then Joss wraps up all of his his plot lines. And it's, it's beautifully done, where we have Armor, the young mutant who went into space, beating Wolverine into submission and forcing him to train her. And we have Agent Brand and the Beast coming to terms with one another, and Cyclops finally managing, having to put his goggles back on, and saying, finally saying he and Emma say they love each other, which I've been waiting for that. Hmm. I really have. That's the moment for me that really kind of teared me up. And then, of course, it ends with Colossus just staring into space and, and mooning over his lost love. So does this have, so does this issue have lasting ramifications for the entire X-Men universe? As much as the X-Men universe ever has lasting ramifications, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a very nice capstone, and it really touches on everything that I want in an X-Men story. Because it gives me the X-Men heroism, but it also reminds us that they're alienated. The moment where Colossus, Colossus threatens to destroy the break world, then realizes it won't work, and decides to throw a swerve at the guy and says, I'll just rule your planet in your stead. Mm. And that's where the villain loses his cool. Mm -hmm. It's a moment where they have to do, I mean, they have to do X-Men thinking. You're not, when you're an X-Men, you're not a, a stand in, throw your shield, you know, and go out to the accolades of the people guy. You're the sneak in the back door. You may have to hurt some people and it'll get done dirty if it gets done at all, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. The dialogue is excellent. John Cassidy's art is effing spectacular i mean really beautiful throughout his kitty pride and his emma frost are the kind of women that make you you know actually wish that they weren't just lines on paper <laughs> um, is this is this in continuity is this in x-men continuity <coughs> or not i gotta tell you your guess is as good as mine okay um i think it could possibly be but if you recall way back about five years ago when this started there were some nods towards events in the first 12 issues of Astonishing X-Men about the time that they began um, House of Ma. Yeah. <laughs> and there were some references, vague references in Civil War X-Men. So Marvel time being what it is, this could have taken place, you know, during the three days between the House of Ma and the Civil War, or it could be something that took place over the course of an afternoon while Wolverine was also in Madripoor. Um, I want to say, <laughs> I want to say this though: if it's not in continuity, Marvel is really doing themselves a disservice because it's the best X title to me, probably since about 1990. About the time Jim Lee's first ten issues of the New X Men were really excellent, and they have not hit that kind of stride, at least in my mind, uh, in a very long time. This is, a, this is a book that made me buy X-Men and look forward to X-Men every month. Give me, give me a, at four ninety nine for the cover four ninety nine. Give me a, give me a rating here. I'm going to go once again, 4.5 out of 5. Not perfect, because there are, there are a few things in here. The continuity question, um, some minor glitchiness in terms of 
where this happens, when this happens, and all of the heroes gathering whether or not they actually would trust each other. Right. And the four ninety nine price point does have to knock it down a little bit. It's a double size kind of big annual wrap up issue, but it's beautifully done. Um, I just wish they wouldn't renumber everything. You know, they did the same thing with the Robin spoiler special number one. I wish they right. would have just kept that as a Robin annual, so it would have just fit right in my collection perfectly. Hmm. Instead, now, you know, alphabetically, it now gets shifted into another giant size. Astonishing X-Men does not go with Astonishing X-Men. What you should do is alphabetize your collection by character. Yeah. Okay. That'll work. Then everything fits in the Wolverine. Everything goes under W. Uh, Put it it under T for the thing, the amazing (laughs) Spider-Man. Yeah. I was I was surprised you didn't review a JSA number 16, but I see that you have that on the lineup to appear on the site sometime within the next five days. It should hit Thursday afternoon, barring any unforeseen loss of consciousness this evening. And I'm really curious to see what what your thoughts are on this, because I really like how they swerved out of left field, at least to me, with the God character and how they placed him in the pantheon of new gods, so to speak. I'll give you this preview. Okay. I either liked it or I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I I liked what they did with Gok. Now, what they're going to do with him afterwards, I'm not sure, but I really like how they tied in, you know, what went, what came before the new gods and what's coming after the new gods. I'll just say that and let uh, everybody check out the Majorspoilers.com website for Matthew's review. Uh, later this week and Um, something else that you can pick up on the major spoilers.com website other than my reviews which are awesome please love me uh our question of the week yes this week involves special weaponry we're looking for your opinion of what is the best comic book weapon uh so far i believe is it 10 you have a lot of stuff here Uh, well rodrigo originally sent me like four and then i was thinking you know what there's more weapons than this and so i kind of did a quick couple of searches at a couple of sites and said, okay, well, here's what a general consensus of some right. of the better weapons in uh, comicdom are. And so I just kind of pulled from that list of right. probably 30 or 40 what I thought would be 10 really good talking points. Mm-hmm. No stilt man legs? No, and and uh, certainly no batarang is not on the list. Nope. Yeah. And that's the, Jack, what we Jack do have the on the list. Kryptonite, kryptonite right. I mean, the Luthor power suit's not mm-hmm. on there. Luthor's kryptonite ring. What is on the list? We have uh, Thor's hammer, Mjolnir. Yeah, or I just call it Thor's them, hammer because I can't pronounce it. <laughs> I, you have to say it like your Toki war tooth. Mjolnir. Yeah, who's those tokens about Thor's today's? That slipped exactly. into Ringo Star for some reason. <laughs> Toki Warwolf, Ringo Star, it's all the same. Also on the list, uh, a, a Green Lantern's ring, the most powerful weapon in the known universe. Wolverine's claws. Uh, or, of, the, of course, their counterpart, Captain America's shield, both adamantium, would you rather cut or be unable to be cut? Dr. Octopus's tentacles, uh, Iron Man's armor, Hellboy's right hand of doom, as opposed to my left hand of um, mediocre piano playing, <laughs> uh, the pumpkin bombs of the Green Goblin, the witch blade, because really there's never enough half-naked women covered in boogers, or Captain Cold's freeze gun. And to me, that's kind of the dark horse candidate right there. <laughs> well, Captain, and, and you, like can, you can throw in Mr. There. Freeze's freeze gun, too. I mean, yeah. you, can, you can lump them all together, I think. Come on, when, that was if, just you know, like the joke. That was the joke entry of the... You tell me there, there are a lot of eight-year-olds sitting out there going, Boy, I wish I had a freeze gun. <laughs> 
instant snowballs, dude. Instant snowball fight. Eh. See, for me, I, I had to vote with the obvious, and I had to go with Green Lantern's ring simply because you can have anything you can, you know, anything that you're powerful enough to will into existence with that ring. You could actually create the other weapons on the list with that weapon. Uh, you know, I had to go with, with the Green Lantern ring, too. It's just too much of a cool thing to be able to kill people with your imagination. <laughs> Which is which is what I always wanted to do back in the schoolyard in seventh grade. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to. I just want to bring forth the uh, green uh, French maids that uh, yeah, uh, Guy uh, Garner was always having around us. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and you know, in a lot of ways, the Witchblade is kind of like the Green Lantern ring, except on a sexier person most of the time. That is true. I went ahead. Oh. And we're going to make it a unanimous major spoilers panel pick. Green Lantern ring number one. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some really great comments that people are posting up on the Majorspoilers.com website that you have to read. Some good arguments back and forth on why some weapons are better than others. Some people are really pushing for Thor's hammer. Other people just are pushing for a cap shield uh, with over 200. This is the largest number of people that's voted in the short hours that we've had from the time I posted it to the time that we record this podcast. Over 200 people have voted and by far in the lead is Green Lantern's ring. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage you to go over and vote if you have not done so. Uh, read other people's comments. Go ahead and do your own comments. Uh, whatever that you feel that you need to do uh, there on the uh, on the poll. And, and uh, we hope that you like these each week because it sure is a heck of a lot of fun tracking down all these images and cropping them to yeah. the right size and posting the code correctly and spending an hour <laughs> fretting going, what's the question going to be this week? So We do it all for you, you rotten kids, so you better enjoy it or <laughs> we're not going lawn. to grandma's house. Get off my lawn. <laughs> all right, so let's get into our big discussion this week, uh, our trade paperback. Uh, by far for me, this is one of the best trade paperbacks that anyone can buy. It's Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. And if you don't know the story, it takes place in the future, some 10 years from 1980 ago, um, where an agent... I mean, the story takes place... In the, no, wait. This future is actually the past. Yes. yes. It, it happens in the future 10 years ago. Yes. But so, if, the future, if the future of the past is still the past, doesn't that... Never mind. It sure makes a hell of a good story. Yeah. Uh, we, we get to see what happens to Batman in the future as an old man. Does he give up being Batman? What draws him back into, into the role? How does he deal with all of his, of his old friends? We certainly see uh, Green Arrow. We certainly see Superman. We get a hint of a Wonder Woman, but we really don't see her until another... Uh, a couple of stories down the road. We also might see an appearance by a Selena Kyle here and there. But this simply, I, you know, just to say my overall view is I started reading comics more seriously in, I think this came out in 1986, I think is when it came out. Same year as Watchmen. Yeah. And so I was, I kept on going to the bookstores and I would see the first book bound um, sitting up on the shelves all the time looking at me and I'd flip it open. I'd get to that page later on where we see a Superman getting nuked and I was like, oh, this isn't for me. And I'd set it down and I'd set it down and it took me about two years until about 1988 before I finally found it in a trade paperback, not in the book form. And I said, you know what? This has such a very cool cover with Mm -hmm. this silhouette of Batman with the lightning strike behind him. 
I've just got to pick this up. At the time, I was really into Batman. The first Batman movie had already been out. Uh, Batman fever was really high. Um, I was buying, (laughs) you know, this new thing called Legends of the Dark Knight, which I thought was really cool. And so I said, okay, let me just try reading this Dark Knight Returns. And blew me away. I think I sat down over two afternoons on a weekend and read through this. And the first time I read it, it was a little difficult for me because it doesn't follow traditional comic book narrative of here's the panel. In fact, there's a lot of times where there Mm -hmm. is panels that are like the TV monitor conversations or the dialogue but below. I had not read Daredevil with Frank Miller, so I wasn't familiar with how he was telling stories. And so it kind of was confusing in some parts for someone who was, again, still fairly new into comics. But I finished it. And I sat down and I read it three more times uh, over the next week. I think it was over the summer when I got it. This has got to be one of the best stories ever told of the Batman. And I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me, but uh, holy cow, this is good. Yeah, for I, me, I've always, I always felt, you know, that The Dark Knight Returns has better cinematography than most movies. Yes. Um, sure. And and it does come down to the panels, the rounded panels for the TVs, which of course will eventually really date it because our TVs are aren't <laughs> rounded like that anymore. Yeah. Um, and just you know, this building's really tall; it's giving you vertigo. The panels are really thin and long, kind of stuff. You know, it just formally, you know, even if the story wasn't that good, which it is, it is really great. Um. Just, just for the way that the book is structured, not even drawn, just like, just because of the way that the panels tell the story, this book is worthwhile. Yeah, Matthew, some general impressions. This is really the book that created, uh, with help, but this is the book that created the comic book industry that we know today. This is where it came from. This was really the first, to me, the first attempt to take. A character like Batman and put him in a setting where you go, how would this actually go? How can we make this, you know, how or how can we look at this as though it were real? What exactly would happen if Batman actually existed? And in this story, you've got, you know, Bruce Wayne pushing 50. Is he so pushing 50? I thought he was pushing maybe a little bit older, but certainly if he's pushing 50, then Jim Gordon has to be pushing 80. Right. Well, I'm looking at it from the perspective of he's a man who's well past his prime Mm -hmm. and he's still doing, you know, he's still doing his Batman thing. He's having to think around human limitations. Um, Well, in fact, at the very beginning, you you can tell he has given up being Batman altogether, yet he still has some kind of a death wish because it opens up with, you know, some mustachioed guy driving a race car and the thing's about to blow up. And he says, uh, this would be a good death but not good enough. And, you know, then you find out, oh, he, this is Bruce Wayne who made it out of this fire and he's just walking around and you can tell that he's old and, and just has a freak out. You know, he Mm -hmm. gets, he's going down to the place where his parents were murdered and some of the thugs that we'll encounter later on try to mug him. And he just has a freak out and they don't know what's going on. And this is kind of like a snapping point for him. Uh, it's one of the hottest days of the year, one of the hottest nights of the year. They don't know what's going to happen. And then something does happen that sets him off, and the Batman's loose on the city again. He shaves off the mustache, and he's ready to go go kick some ass. Right. And he does talk about, you know, he's there's this great panel uh, that I just love. Uh, it's it's almost a full-page Batman, and it's, it's one of my favorite poses of him jumping And it says, this should be agony. I should be a mass of aching muscle, broken 
spent, unable to move. And were I an older man, I surely would. But I'm a man of 30, of 20 again. The rain on my chest is a baptism. I am born again. And you suddenly realize, yeah, this guy's he's totally ready to go nuts. He's going to go kick some ass, which... As you said, he's totally nuts, Rodrigo. Mm-hmm. For everybody that's bitching and complaining about All-Star Batman and Robin, take this Batman that you're seeing in The Dark Knight Returns and make him 20, where he is, pushing in some insanity, and that's what makes that story work. Yeah. But again, it's I mean, it's a natural progression from the intensity, from the, the focus, from the lifelong fixation that Bruce Wayne has always had from, you know, 1938 on, the man's nuts. He's always been nuts. And this is the first real look at it and and going, he's BF crazy, but that's part of the reason why he's Batman. And that's part of the reason how he's Batman. I mean, the moment that really gets me is my, my favorite moment is when he gets shot in the chest. Yes. And he falls. Here and it he is. makes the remark about, you know, why do you think I wear a target on my chest? I can't armor my head. Yep. And it answers the question, you know, why would you put a big bullseye right over your heart? Yep. Because it's over seven inches worth of, you know, armor and all sorts of crap. Yep. I, I think that's that to me is another brilliant moment. And one of the reasons why on a, on a podcast uh, several times ago where our question of the week was what bat symbol do you like the most and the reason why i like the yellow one Mm. is because it it is the target it's so that people are pointing at that instead of anywhere else but you know he goes out on a on an ass kicking spree that first night and i just love how they intercut the television back and forth saying oh reports of some mysterious batman is batman back and and just the confusion that goes on with that and then of course there's some social commentary too that goes on. And I don't know if this is the first time that we've seen in a Batman title, the idea of the Batman is the one that's creating the villains Mm -hmm. or the villain is creating the Batman. And you have all of these people who are against Batman returning. And there are a bunch of people who are pro Batman returning. And of course this leads to the resurrection of some of the most diabolical Batman villains that are out there. Uh, Harvey two face, who's pulling this uh, kidnapping, who at one point did have this, and this is also interesting, he did have the surgery, he got his face fixed, uh, but he's still crazy in the head, sets up this uh, this dual kidnapping and that uh, concludes on the on the Channel 2's Twin Towers, and, uh, and then eventually scars himself, which is uh, uh, almost like what we saw in Face the Face. Uh, that that limited ser- the limited uh, story that was told um, what two years ago after one year later, it's, <laughs> so really one year ago. Yeah, whatever it was. I just I mean, it's just so powerful that here Batman is inspiring people, yet at the same time he's scaring the crap out of people, like with the the thugs, and then he's inspiring this girl to go and dress up and become the new Robin. Mm-hmm. And having a female Robin really adds a different dynamic to it. And I, I, I don't mean anything perverse by that. I mean, having the female character, Batman's nuts. He's beyond nuts. He's, I'm going to go in and punch 700 people to death and rip out their spines and beat them over the head. And she's technologically savvy. She's very up to date. She's kind of the brains of the outfit. But he's still protective of her because essentially she's a little girl. It's a weird dynamic, but it's fascinating to me to actually read through what they're doing with her. Well, and I think it brings up something that I think a lot of writers 
have since not quite gotten the handle of, and maybe even before uh, hadn't quite gotten that Batman, you know, is in fact totally insane and needs some connection to the real world. And this connection is Robin. Right. Um, And in this book, you can really see that where um, just through their interactions, she's kind of uh, kind of pulls him back to being human when he's starting to get too when he's too too, mo- more- too insane when yeah. he goes after the head of the uh, of the of the street thugs and essentially fires a tank at the guy and yeah. then they go out and they fight in the mud and even though Batman thinks he knows what's going on you know uh, he may be faster but I'm smarter and that's why I'm fighting him in the mud and still gets his ass kicked and it's mm-hmm. up to you know it's up to uh, Robin to to save him essentially yeah it it's, is like that that's a pretty intense fight yeah. And it's probably the most intense fight in comics history, up at least to date. I've never seen anything quite like well, it I mean, at the time. I guess you know there's actually a second intense fight in this in this tale, but that one is certainly one that makes you go, "Holy!" He is just going after these guys, and even though he's using rubber bullets, he's still out for the kill. And just, I would not want to meet this guy in a dark alley. And I have to give kudos uh, to Bruce Tim and Paul Dini for. Uh, doing that Batman animated tale where it was the three kids giving their different takes on Batman. And one of them, her version of Batman was this fight from dark Knight returns. Simply awesome. Yeah. Just seeing the, uh, the Warner brothers animation of like, and, and really, you know, kind of in a comical way, but very pretty faithful of, uh, the, uh, the Frank Miller stuff, like the punks with the with the single kind of Cyclops visor kind the, of thing the going Johnny on. The Johnny Slash visor, yeah. yeah. The thing that, that really strikes me about this is this is not a realistic future. This is the future that 1986 expected. Well, because we're at where, the height of the Cold War, right? I mean, right, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's that dark dystopian kind of, you know, punk future that... that you really don't get after about 1990 or so. And reading it, it's one of those things where we discuss whether having a book be topical or having it be tied to its time is a plus or a minus. This one is a plus because this is the future of 1986. Mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan is, you know, a thousand-year-old president. And this is this is what the future of 1986 should have been if Batman were alive 20 years ago when it was 10 years in the well, future. <laughs> and this is the thing that's really weird because you have to read the first two books or the first two chapters in this trade uh, to find out Batman's return. But it's not until after this that you find out why he retired, why we don't see other superheroes around. Essentially, they went and did the Superhero Registration Act mm-hmm. uh, and said, look, superheroes, either turn yourself in and work for the government or give it up and walk away. And there are people like Green Arrow and Batman who said, "Mm, screw you, we're going to work underground. Mm -hmm. And then there's people like Superman, who is the epitome of the of the Boy Scout. Yeah. As more of a Superman fan myself, that was one of the plot points that bothered me that, yes, he was conservative and yes, he's from the Midwest. But to me, Superman wouldn't easily become the tool you don't of think a so? Semi-corrupt president. I don't. I, I don't think he would do it unless there was no other option. But see, unless and, it was something that he felt was protecting everyone else. But see, that's what it is, though. I mean, we are again at the Cold War. Those Russians are pointing their nukes at us. There's all this stuff going on in Corto Maltese that's a big could could kick off World War Three. 
And Superman is, you know, by following Reagan, who's not really spelled out as Reagan, but certainly looks an awful lot like him. It's uh, Reagan. It's I, Reagan. Well, it is Reagan. But if it's in the future, how come Reagan had five terms or whatever? That's <laughs> That would have been the issue. But, you know, he's doing whatever Reagan says because he believes that this is what's best for America. And that's why he becomes the tool. And that's why Batman and Green Arrow totally despise him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think what, it, what, what this book does is it takes pretty much every character in it and just stretches them to the extreme before saying extreme was cool. Um, <laughs> you know, it takes, it takes Superman and, you know, it doesn't take every, maybe even every aspect of the character because, you know, up until here, Batman was always written as a very human, per- you know, he was, a, he was a guy who put on a suit and fought crime as opposed to a giant bat monster who just actually happens to look like a person. Right. Um, same thing with Superman. And what, what they did is, you know, let's take the psychotic aspect of batman and push it to the extreme and let's take the boy scout aspect of superman and push that to the extreme and then when they we can't pull them any further let's just let go and watch them try to kill each other <laughs> but and before book, go ahead this book is responsible for one of the things that i really hate about the modern dc universe as wonderful as it is in that the moment where we actually finally see superman and batman confronting each other this is the first time it is explicitly spelled out that in DC continuity, if Batman has prep time, he'll kill anybody. Well, and that's what somebody on on the comments section said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, given enough time, Batman would could kick <laughs> anybody's ass, even Superman's. And he spells it out exactly as they're going through this knockdown, drag out. You know, somebody's going to die here. Fight. He spells out exactly what he did to bring down Superman, and that he actually needs help from. From the one-armed Green Arrow uh, with a Kryptonite uh, arrow, which there had to have been some reference somewhere recently that I saw that hinted that Green Arrow was going to have his arm torn off by Superman at some point. Was was that spelled out in a a fairly recent storyline, Matthew? I mean, it didn't happen, but it came really close, and that would have pushed the Dark Knight into, into this. When Oliver Queen was killed at the end of the Green Arrow run, roughly 94-ish, I want to say. When he was blown up on the plane. He was blown up on the plane with his left arm stuck in that device to keep the bomb from going off and Superman trying to save him. And it, it was a situation where he was trying to do something important. Superman was trying to save him and it was very condescending. And the implication was that Oliver was not exactly dead, that he lost, that the arm was blown off and that he was going to come back and it was going to roll into that, yeah. you know, dystopian Dark Knight future. But going back what- to going back to the Batman Superman fight, Her- Hermit from the website, he, he posts, he says, hey, Batman kicking Superman's ass. I'll take that any day of the week. I hate Superman with a passion. Seeing that was pure joy to me. <laughs> But, okay. you know, I mean, I know you're I know, you know, why that can be contentious for a lot of people. It did start a lot of fights of no way this could never happen. Superman's the most powerful he could take. You know, there's this whole scene where uh, Superman first comes to Bruce and tells him to knock it off. And it's just this big blue streak because Superman technically is not supposed to be an operative. He's not supposed to be out. He's not supposed to be seen. So there's this idea that, yeah, he could, you know, just clean Batman's clock. Here's my problem with the theory that Batman can beat anybody with preparation. 
The argument seems to be that Batman is a superior hero because he's, and I'm air quoting with my fingers, human. He's more human, and so he represents the best of us. But if we take the conceit that Batman, you know, give Batman an hour and, and some rubber bands and he'll MacGyver something to destroy anybody, that is an effing superpower. You cannot make the argument in the same breath that, oh, Batman's better because he's more human, but, you know, give him an hour and with his super brain and, and his endless fortune and his best superpower of all, the complacency of the writer, he'll be able to defeat Green Lantern or Superman or Galactus or <laughs> or Italian Spider-Man. Somebody oh, who's never. I don't know if he could defeat Italian <laughs> Spider-Man. You cannot, you, you can't make that argument at the same time. Either he's human or he can, you know, he has this power that allows him to analyze and take things apart and destroy anything. It, you can't have both. Oh, yeah. Batman and as a character is, when he is poorly written, when he is poorly handled, Batman as a character becomes as much of a deus ex machina as Adam West's utility belt. Okay, now let Rick me... Robin, the Bat Shark Now let me, let me counter that by saying, this is Batman... 50, 60 years old, not Batman in his 20s and 30s. So he technically or theoretically in this book has had 30 years to sit down and stew over what has happened in America and with the superheroes. So theoretically, over 30 years, he could have come up in his mind the exact plan to defeat Superman. Not something done in an hour or in a day or however long this takes place leading up to this, but 30 plus years of, oh, I can't believe you did this to us, Clark. I'm going to kick your and this is how I'm going to do it and I'm going to get such and such and I'm going to waste my fortune to develop this kryptonite <laughs> arrow and you know, just really this you know, this, he has a bitterness to him that, you know, you people have turned me down from superheroes to the public to whoever, you have turned your eye away from me. Why should I rise up and be a hero to you again? And yet he does that in this tale. Mm -hmm. And I will grant you that. And it's very well done here. And the fight, I mean, the moment where, as, as a huge Superman fan, the moment where he kicks him in the face, and it's obvious that he has the upper hand, wonderfully powerful moment, an excellent moment. The problem is, what other writers did next. True. What Frank, what Frank does here is not by any means restrained. There is absolutely no restraint behind it, but it's very calculated the way it's put together, and it's very specific. Like you said, he's had the time to create this strategy, and then you take it, you know, it's, it's kind of like Wolverine's healing factor. It's gotten more and more to the point where mm -hmm. we've, we've actually nuked him and annihilated every... Right. Item, item, item iota of his being and he's rebuilt his entire body from nothing because somebody didn't know when to quit oh, Frank yeah. Miller knew how to draw that line and then run over it to the next line and go I'm going to stick my toe over that too but he did it in such a way that in this story it totally worked what came afterwards may not have been the best this story set the framework and did something awesome that other people imitated badly is the Joker a dandy in this? Oh, yeah. He He's a fancy off, lad. He comes off as quite the fancy <sighs> lad. But yet, I thought, in my opinion, this was one of the scariest interpretations of the Joker that I had read at the time. And I'd read other Joker tales before this. You know, this was after uh, Death in the Family, after he bludgeons Robin to death with a crowbar. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, I'm no, reading... 
Yes, it was. It had to well, have been. Uh, this was before. Okay, Jason maybe Todd when maybe when I read it. How okay. about that? Maybe when okay. I read it, um, it was after the uh, death in the family. But okay. I read it and I was like, "This has got to be one of the creepiest interpretations of the Joker ever." And it tru- truly frightened me how psychotic the Joker could be to get to the point where. Yeah, you beat me, Batman. I killed all these people, but I'm still going to have the last laugh because I'm going to break my own neck lying here crippled in a puddle of water and make everybody think that you did this to me. Yeah, that the again, it's the question of if we're going to make Batman this crazy, don't we have to make his craziest villain that much more it's it's like exponential progression batman's twice as nuts as he's ever been so the joker's got to be 50 times as disturbing as ever mm-hmm. and it and it's just to me it's just creepy i oh, mean oh yeah just oh if you want to read a creepy version of the joker this is where it is now we did say that this is a product of the 80s this book mm-hmm. is a definite product of the 80s and one of the big things that is the underlying story throughout the entire five chapters Uh, or four chapters, uh, and even leading up to uh, four chapters, leading up to the big confrontation with with, uh, Superman, is this idea of we're in the middle of a Cold War. The nukes are going to go off at any moment. And I know as a kid, uh, remember that movie, what was it called? The Day After Tomorrow? The Day After. The Day After. They blew up Lawrence, Kansas in that movie. And that was like 10, you know, 20 minutes away from my house. Oh, and Steve just, what have they done to you? <laughs> I just remember being freaked out for days, if not weeks, after seeing that and going, oh my God, this, this could happen. This mm-hmm. could be the nuke. And so there is this underlying thing with this little island called Corto Maltese uh, that takes place throughout this that eventually leads to the Russians launching a nuclear bomb. It uh, Superman, of course, stopping it. He gets nuked. Uh, his body falls apart, but uh, the sun, Mother Earth and the sun save him. But this whole idea that it sets off an EMP and, and causes Gotham City to go into darkness, at which point it forces Bruce Wayne to say, you know what, you people have turned your back on me, but I'm going to save you anyway. And he leads the charge to save the city from ultimate uh, chaos. But this idea of Corto Maltese, now this, when I read this, I was like, oh, what an interesting island. I wonder if it's a real place. And this kind of set me along this path that, you know, not all of these places that are referenced in D.C. are real. Mm -hmm. But what's also interesting is uh, years later, they keep using Corto Maltese in D.C. titles. There was one Superman tale recently, a couple of years ago, where Lois goes to Corto Maltese to... Um, find out what what's going on there, and and this is where Bane was was essentially right. born. And what's the what's the deal with Corto Maltese? Corto Maltese is actually a literary reference that uh, Frank Miller threw in. Apparently, uh, in the sixties and seventies, there was a, a series of comics. I believe they were Italian and translated into English about a pirate called Corto Maltese. It's it's set in World War One. Corto Maltese basically, you know, kind of walked the earth and had adventures, to quote Jules Winfield, and, you know, went through his life and had very, you know, very early kind of swashbuckling Batman-y type adventures. And apparently, 
Miller has admitted that he was a fan of the Corto Maltese novels and, and stories and actually used it as an in-joke, at which point uh, people at DC picked up on his in-joke and made it not a reference to something that he had referenced, but a reference to his work, which is kind of you know, indicative of what an inbred market comics can be, but yeah. <laughs> well, because it seems like so many people have picked up on that. And I mean, we've got like, uh, what is it? Curac and Kondak, uh, yeah. that are supposed to be your middle East, Iraq and Iran countries mm-hmm. without and, actually using those countries. And then in Europe, they've got Vlatava where, uh, Count Vertigo is from. Right. Well, it's interesting all- because I think that, uh, in one of those, um, DC Marvel crossover events, the DC heroes, arrive at the marvel earth and they say oh well you know it's it's almost like ours except it's smaller because it's missing all of these other places yeah and i think it's, Car- Corto it's missing maltese midway is, city yeah i think corto maltese was kind of referenced as maybe one of those as well but it kind of struck home that hey this is one of those little fictional cities that has an interesting back or countries that has an interesting backstory we do have a an island full of mutants over here guys <laughs> and we have an island full of uh, dinosaurs yeah. you'd like hey. uh, some of those too so uh, so overall, this has got to be, in my opinion, oh, well, let me just ask this. Were there any other characters that you kind of got a kick out of seeing show up in the story? I kind of like the Selena Kyle appearance where she's this aged hooker who dresses mm-hmm. up in superhero costumes to get people off. I did kind of like seeing her appearance. Um, I did miss seeing, you know, any reference to Batgirl, uh, to, um, you know, to, to Dick, to, mm-hmm. you know, really a lot of the other ones that we know. But, you know, just some of the, the special appearances by some of these characters that you weren't expecting, I thought was, was really nice. Did, were any of them that stood out to you guys? I loved Alfred. Mm. Eight, 87-year-old Alfred just burning the crap out of Bruce Wayne. Every word out of his mouth just dripping with sarcasm <laughs> yeah. about... About a 55-year-old man running through the streets in tights. It's just, I love the fact that Alfred is not only still alive, at the beginning of the story, he's actually more alive, quote-unquote, than Bruce Wayne himself. Yeah. And at at the very end, can I spoiler it? I'll spoiler oh, it. Oh, yeah, you have to. I mean, that's the whole point of this yeah. is a trade that's but, been out for 20 years. People well, haven't read it by now, then. Russell, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> The point well, you guys where gotta spoil everything. Oh, the point on. where they really show us what Alfred is about is the point where Bruce decides he has to break all ties and destroys the Batcave and destroys yeah. Wayne Manor. And at the moment that the last vestiges of Wayne Manor collapses, Alfred falls and dies of a heart attack. Yeah, I thought that was the, a nice touch too. The gentleman's gentleman who existed to take care of the house. Yep didn't die until the house was gone and, you know, until the the people were taken care of or moved on. Well, essentially, Bruce, every last member of the Wayne family is gone at this point because uh, Batman decides to go underground and form his own Bat army, in a sense, to <laughs> fight and save the day or continue on. Fighting to save the day! If, did you have any? Ray. Did you have any uh, special moments that you like the best out of that? Well, I like I like a lot of what Alfred does. Uh, doesn't he like bust out in a, like a motorcycle and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> he's just really great. And and you know, and, and in a lot of ways, Robin steals the show. I I found, and you know, I remember when I was when I was first reading it, first encountering Superman, I was like, wait a minute. This was this was told to me that it was going to be a Batman book, so I was like, oh, I hope they don't bring in like the Flash and stuff like that. Um, as much as I like the Flash and Green Lantern and stuff like that, um, 
So I, I was actually kind of happy to not see people I was familiar with. Um, yeah. I understand, you know, once I read the whole thing where the Superman thing was going, you know, he's kind of right. in, in the same way that the the Joker and Batman are two sides of the same coin. Uh, Batman and Superman are two sides of a different coin. Right. Exactly. It's it's like the argument that you make. If you look at, and I'm going to go off on a tangent, so I'm going to actually be overeducated nerd for a minute. Okay. If you look at the archetypes of Superman and Batman, Superman is all about the Apollonian ideal. He's the sun god. He's the guy who swoops down, blazing fire from his eyes. And Batman is his exact opposite. He's that, that Dionysian guy in the darkness who comes up out of the filth and still breaks your neck because you're a bastard. And I will point out that in Trinity number one, there's a great little reference to that uh, when the fortune teller is trying to discover who the three people are in, in this tale. Batman is the, the devil and Superman is the sun god. Yep. And, and that's, I think, part of the reason why Trinity probably feels like the Batman-Superman adventure starring Wonder Woman because, yeah. you know, you have that dichotomy between them and the girl. Because Wonder Woman, in a lot of ways, unfortunately, has for a long time been written as kind of a female Superman. Maybe yeah. a female Superman who has even less contact with the human race by, uh, you know, by virtue of being kind of a, you know, an Amazon that was raised on a forbidden island. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. one of the things, one of the things that, I, that I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention is the fact that that balance, that Superman-Batman balance is... I don't know if you guys read The Authority with Apollo and the Midnighter. No, I don't. Uh, Apollo and the Midnighter are essentially Batman and Superman analogs who fell in love. And it's ah. kind of like... Mm-hmm. It, it's a moment where they are so perfectly uh, counterbalanced to one another that... You know, in in the in the writer's hands, taking those two archetypes, they were actually able to put them together and see, you know, hey, they might be a couple. So, you you can look at it from the point of Doctor Wortham going, oh no, they're all in tights. They must be they must be homosexuals. But it's interesting to see that, like you said, Superman and Batman are as much counterbalances as Batman and the Joker, but in a completely different way. And I think taking because of the because they are those archetypes. It works better in the story that they're the only ones in it. Mm-hmm. You don't yes. have to go, oh, here's Plastic Man. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, that's the Phantom Lady. They don't have that archetypical punch that you get. Right. Nobody nobody doesn't know Superman. Nobody doesn't know Batman. And if you had a story where it's a, a Superman, Batman, the Adam and Booster Gold, yeah. as much as I love Booster Gold, as much as I love the Adam, they don't have that, you know, it, it, it's almost like, Social memory. Everybody knows Superman and Batman. Let me ask you this. This is kind of a final question. At the end, Batman is essentially alone except for his army. And in fact, even Robin, he says many times throughout the book, that's a good soldier. That's Mm -hmm. that's a good soldier. Is he saying that as much as we like Batman and Superman team up adventures, that at the end of the day, Batman is never, ever, ever going to be a team player it has to be his way or no way. It's definitely implied. Mm-hmm. Batman. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever read World's Finest Comics when you were growing up. I did. A- I did read a few. In fact, I ba- did a retro review on one of my favorite World's Finest issues. 
It was a Batman-Superman team-up every month for 50-odd years, and they worked really well together until you started extrapolating the point where, you know, Batman is the kind of guy who kind of would do anything. And as this series came out and as things progressed to and past The Dark Knight, it became obvious that Batman is willing to take steps that Superman absolutely cannot consider because of his alien nature. So if you look at Batman from the perspective of he's the guy who goes too far because he has to, then you take that. And there's no way, honestly, there's no way that this Batman is going to beam down to a cave and be part of a Justice League adventure, smiling, two-fisted, you know, kind of a, a swashbuckler. This Batman would, you know, punch the villain in the face and rip out his neck. True. I, I got to say, I, I also love we have to touch on besides the story, Frank Miller's art, which I mm -hmm. think is just really stands out. I mean, the stuff that he does to uh, Harvey Two-Face when he shows that even though his face may be fixed, he's still a monster inside that little sequence. What he does with an aged uh, Commissioner Gordon, uh, the grotesqueness of the Bruce Wayne disguise as a as a bag lady, mm -hmm. uh, Superman's, you know, spit curl, Ronald Reagan's ageism it, it's just everything just works out really well in this oh, yeah. in this as far as the art goes and, and it's 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 so i don't know like uh straightforward it's like here's here's what you need to think about this like it's very iconic it's right. just you know here's alfred alfred is like an oval with with Wait, a little bit left. of hair on either side and boom that's alfred every time yeah you know and and it is it's simple but it's not simplistic it's not like because simplistic would be you know everybody looks the same right that every character just automatically he just gives you their personality here's who they are mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep and this is the point really kind of i don't i don't want to say this as insultingly as it sounds this is kind of the last point where frank miller's art was attractive to me mm -hmm. well and i will it, agree with you because if you've read dark knight returns to dk2 <laughs> You mean the one that he inked with a sledgehammer? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to crap on anybody's artistic choices as though they were Yellow Jacket. But this is, <laughs> this is the point where it works for me because he stylizes things. You have you know, have a, a thick 55-year-old Batman and you have uh, Alfred who's this wizened 90-year-old man. And then you have the mutants who are on all sorts of drugs and probably you know enhancing operations that have morphed their forms and made them all creepy and... You have a Joker who looks like he is riddled with disease. Yes, that's why I the asked if he, was a, if he was a dandy. Well, and that's the thing. The Joker is literally, I mean, he's he's just like, he looks like a plague victim. Yeah. But because of that, you look at that and you go, my God, what's wrong with that man? And then the moment comes where he reveals what's wrong with him and you need a shower. I mean, the stylization really, really works. Mm -hmm. There's not, there's not really anything about the art where the stylization really falls down, and, and I you will know, breaks I, that. I will say though, it it took me by surprise when I first read it because I was like, this is not, this is not the comic art that I'm used to at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's yeah. somebody who's new reader think about what you normally see um, in your comics, and that was not what we saw. Overall, I got to say, this earns from me because it's my top of the top. Five out of five for me. You can't go... There's really nothing wrong with this tale. Yeah, there really isn't. Um, I'm going to give it 
uh, four out of five, probably because, uh, like Matthew says, I wasn't there. Yeah. But, you know, um, and it's kind of this thing, you know, people say, like, well, why do people make such a big deal about Citizen Kane? You know, I mean, I've seen stuff like that before. It's like, no, well, they did it first. Right. And really, this is the f- one of the first times and probably the best time where you say, where, where I looked at a comic book and I said, there is no Bruce Wayne. There is just Batman right. pretending to be Bruce Wayne, and right. I think this is the you know this is this is the one that just totally stamps it for me. Matthew, this is a book that literally changed paradigms. Um, it's it's a Jay Gillette moment, Steve. Um, <laughs> everything we knew about the Batman from that point came together into this, and you could never look at him the same way again, for good or for ill. And everything that I hate about bad Batman stories now is in this book done well, done iconically, and done so that you cannot ignore this story if you ever want to write Batman. If you try to write Batman and don't take into account the existence of this story, the fans will come down on you like the hammer of God. So I got to agree with Stephen, um, five out of five, it is a beautifully done book. And if you don't own it, it's one of those comics that I say you absolutely should own. This and... This and Watchmen, if yeah, you don't own yeah. those, you ain't a comic fan. Well, and I got to say, I, I bought the trade paperback when it first came available. I still have it. That's what I'm using to reference tonight. At the 10-year anniversary, I spent whatever it was, an ungodly amount of money at the time, <laughs> to buy this hardbound cased edition, which is just beautiful. And I believe there's an absolute edition out right now of this the as well. The absolute edition is gorgeous. And that's the one that I, that's next on my list. And I may even make it a prize down the line, so you guys never know, but... Uh, it's one that I would buy again and again and again and again. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to get into everybody's, um, feedback. So you can't go up to the major spoiler site and see that, but there's two that I did want to point out and maybe Matthew can help me out with the second one. But the first one comes from Upton Pickman and he says the dark Knight returns is an excellent read. It's one of those few books that pulls of some, it pulls off some very disturbing scenes that are relevant for the plot, not just for the state sake of being disturbing. The art is very nice. Although some Easter eggs hidden in the news broadcast, uh, something copied by Spider-Man rain recently are very eighties minded. So maybe lost on some younger readers, the whole way, a um, the whole way of Superman being presented when he was first time shown in the book, hanging out with the president on a sunny day is just fantastic. It just showed how different Superman and Batman were in the way they looked at the world and their tasks at hand. Excellent book. Very good choice for the show. Keep up the good work. The other one, Matthew, uh, Hercules in New York. Oh, it's got like five paragraphs worth of stuff here. Um, I'll talk fast. Yeah, it looks like maybe... Um, oh, well, Hercules. Yeah, just go ahead. Okay. Hercules starts out by saying that uh, The Dark Knight Returns, also TDKR or Tidicker, uh, seem to be one of the most groundbreaking non-continuity reads in all of comic history, pioneering many aspects of the superhero comic format. I see it rather as the perfect combination of already existing forms within the medium, which is something that I touched on earlier. Miller constructs the angular caricatures of the characters, gives them, and I love this phrase, epileptic brushstroke vibrancy, then leaves them into a sool to soak in a pool of rain and excrement for effect. Uh, it's not <laughs> Ramita's curvaliciousness. It's not Perez's perfection. It's Frank Miller staining the page with characters as they smear, jitter, and seize all over the pages. Uh, Hercules also remembers it as the first book to make him notice the coloring. Um, he realizes mm-hmm. that the coloring, Lynn Varley's coloring, contributed to the story far more significantly than just painting swaths between the lines. Um, and it's really one of the moments where Hercules says he considered people other than the writer and the artist as being a part of 
or involved in the creation. Uh, beyond the visual assault of it all, the dialogue is significant. It defines the, deifies rather, the pulp noir style of monologue, not seen since their pulp origins. Someplace where Batman owes a great deal of his mm -hmm. history, I might add. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, um, what you see in The Dark Knight Returns is not a trailblazing work. It's a continuation of Miller's work, as well as tips of the hat to Steranko, Howard Chaikin, Jack Kirby, and others. Uh, the dialogue and the maturity of the scenes are similar to things like the old pulp comics or uh, an EC Miller, or excuse me, an EC comic or even a, a Mike Hammer story. Miller is a graphic novel Tarantino, seamlessly weaving the best of his influences into a masterful, an unparalleled work that stands the test of time even today. Yeah. Hercules in New York, sir, I salute you. Yeah, he had, and this actually came in, he got this in just under the wire. In fact, I was about <laughs> wow. ready to send this out to you guys when, when I saw him post that. There's Everybody posted some great comments on the site, even the people that are against the uh, Batman kicking Superman's mm -hmm. butt uh, stuff. So head over to the Majorspoilers.com website and check it out and again if there's one trade paperback that you really need to have it's it's watchman but buy this one too <laughs> you son of a it, it's it's the dark knight that's my opinion but we'll we'll be reviewing watchmen when it gets closer to uh closer to the movie release date all right that's about it that's about it for the show y'all um thanks for listening don't forget to tell everyone about uh the show and be sure to visit our website at majorspoilers.com hit us up by friending us over at myspace you can find us under major spoilers we really appreciate you leaving us a rating over at itunes and podcast alley and if you have questions comments topics ideas for future shows or would like to sponsor the show feel free to drop us an email at podcast at majorspoilers.com Next week, we'll be taking a look at The Boys from Dynamite Entertainment. And I got to warn you, this will not be a show for your kids. So put them to take, take the earbuds out of their ears, put them in yours. Um, and we'll also be talking about the Hulk movie and a lot more because, you know, we know you love comics. And we do, too. Cat, see you around. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the Man of Steel.